everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Cameron English here with you as always. This is the Science Dispatch podcast episode 28 for the American Council on Science and Health. Joined again by my good friend, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at ACSH. Chuck, how are you this lovely day? I'm good. Day? I'm very good. How are you? I can't I'm, believe we're out of 28 episodes either. I, we're getting there, baby. I think I'm going to have to celebrate with a Long Island iced tea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a great drink i think it's a it's a great cocktail for a variety of reasons but in any case we've got a couple stories to discuss the first one is a piece chuck authored and a little bit later we're going to be joined by dr josh bloom our director of chemical and pharmaceutical sciences to talk about uh why drinking smart water is pretty dumb, actually. But Chuck, this story that you wrote is called Thinking Aloud, which is an ongoing series that you write for ACSH. And this one specifically is about COVID amnesty. And I think everyone or most people probably know what we're talking about. Well, why don't you introduce where that phrase comes from for the uninitiated? Well, I guess the, the phrase comes from uh, Dr. Oster, who wrote a piece in The Atlantic uh, speaking out the issue of COVID amnesty and basically suggested that we put aside all the fighting about what had gone on, uh, declare a truce across all borders, and move forward. And it it lit up Twitter, because I guess this is the old Twitter. I'm not sure whether it would light up the new Twitter. But <laughs> it, it lit up Twitter. There was a lot of pushback from any number of people on the topic. And these conversations about what goes wrong in healthcare policy and what goes wrong in in healthcare in general um, resonate with me at, at a very deep level because of my training as a surgeon because every week whether we liked it or not uh, we had to stand up and uh, speak to the things that we had done wrong the week before and so it was a rare time when we didn't have to get up, in this case, in, in my residency on Friday, and uh, discuss what we had done wrong, what we could have done better, or what we should be doing differently. And that has um, colored a lot of my thinking when we start talking about COVID amnesty, because I don't think um, that Dr. Oster is correct. I don't think we can put everything aside. On the other hand, I, I don't agree necessarily with the people that push back saying that we have to punish um, the people that, that got things wrong. And the, the place that I, I went to talk about that briefly was this book by a guy, a guy named Dr. Charles Bosk, who is a, a sociologist. And he went and studied um, the Morbidity and Mortality Conference of Surgery back in the early 70s, and he wrote a book about it, and I think the title of the book captures um, what surgical M&M is about and what a frank discussion of COVID would be about, which is forgive and remember. And I, and I think that those are the things that are probably most important, uh, at least for me, in that discussion. So I, there's a couple of things to discuss here. Um, and one thing I'll say right out of the gate is that there was a spectrum of criticism of 
her article in the Atlantic and, and in your story, there was, you know, there were some people that were being a little more nuanced and there were some people that were just coming at you with a, a hammer, you know, that just bludgeoning. And there's a lot of people out for blood and perhaps that's understandable to a certain extent. But if I can maybe try to neatly summarize some of the criticism, I, I didn't see anything. Um, I didn't see anything like a morbidity and mortality conference, you know? So like, Month over month, if something radically changed about federal policy, say about masking or lockdowns or whatever you want to talk about, there was no there was no point when, uh, you know, Rochelle Walensky or Tony Fauci came out and they said, okay, here's what we did wrong in the preceding months. Here's what we could have done better, and here's how we're going to move forward. There, there was no, there wasn't even a you know mistakes were made, but not by me. Sort of a, a cop out. It was just like, oh, now the new thing is this. You're, you know, so you're absolutely right. The, the, yeah, go ahead. There was a huge problem with the messaging by the CDC, which they're actually in the midst of trying to fix, and, and I'm going to be writing a little bit more about next week as they try and rearrange the deck chairs on the, uh, <laughs> on the CDC. Uh, but they never were able to bring themselves to say, um, we got this wrong, or... The information we had led us in a direction that, as it turns out, is not correct. And I think that that um, inability to say that and that inability to um, be somewhat humble in presenting public health policy um, created a lot of the distrust uh, that was out there because everything that they said uh, was made with a, a air of certainty related to their eminence and their expertise. Um, and it became clear over time as this novel virus changed its behavior that many of the things that we thought were correct uh, in the first months were no longer true. And they were just not able to communicate um, that to the public in, in, in any meaningful way. And they did themselves and they did uh, policymaking in general um, a disservice. That's certainly true. And I think one of the points you make that's really helpful is that you can't understand intentions in many cases. You know, you just don't know what's going on in somebody's head, especially if they're a, a public official and, you know, you don't know all of the variables that are influencing their thinking and the things that they're saying. So I, I think there's some room for caution there, but I remember very clearly when my, my, my understanding of the pandemic shifted and it was in June, 2020, because, because by and large, when this thing broke out, I was like, well, I work with lots of scientists. They're all telling me this and I trust them. So I'm going to, I'm going to go along with what they say. So then NPR comes out with this story in, uh, it's June 1st, 2020. It's called uh, Protesting Racism Versus Risking COVID-19. I wouldn't weigh these crises separately. And the basic gist of the story is, you know, you had these Black Lives Matter protests that were exploding all over the country. Uh, a handful of them turned very, very violent and there's buildings on fire. Everyone knows that story. But this is what got my attention. They say, and they're, they're, they're citing a, an open letter that was signed by 100 public health experts or something like that. So they say the risks of congregating during a global pandemic shouldn't keep people from protesting racism, according to the experts that signed this letter. 
And this is a direct quote. White supremacy is a lethal public health issue that predates and contributes to COVID-19, the letter said. Now, I'm not trying to put you on the spot to talk about white supremacy. That's really neither here nor there. But but what stuck out to me at the time and what has stuck with me since is that this was clearly a, a political, politically motivated action. And you had people with scientific authority making a distinction based on a, a really hot button ideological issue. And so that really bothered me because at the same time that you're telling people you have to stay home, this is how we're going to get through this thing. You're excusing millions of people in mass gatherings and looking back, you know, because it's outdoors, it, it was probably lower risk than, than we originally thought. But nonetheless, you could see how these standards are being implemented uh, selectively. And I, and I can appreciate why that irritates people to this day, because it really irritated me at the do you have any insight on that? Well, let's let's roll it back to talking about intent, and uh, and I think that that's where we get into a lot of trouble um, because a lot of the criticisms have to do with the underlying intent of the policymakers in making the policy, and all of the things that they said, uh, all of the things that the politicians said at the times of the Black Lives Matter um, gatherings uh, further fueled that fire. I can't tell uh, the intent of pretty much anybody. I can pretty much understand my intent most of the time, but even then sometimes I get to be surprised uh, by what I was really intending to do. So my assumption is, is across the entire spectrum, from all the people, from Dr. Fauci to all the people that loved ivermectin to Josh Rogan, who spoke about it, all had good intentions. They all had good intentions. And that, unfortunately, um, we disagreed about how, that, how the data points that we had all collected fit together. And that the difficulty became that rather than talking about the science, because the scientists have already said, this is concrete, this is what is, it became much more of a political battle over what the intent of these policies were. So we had um, the intent of making keeping everybody safe. We had the intent of a, a class warfare struggle. We had the intent of destroying capitalism. Any one of the hobby horses that you wanted to ride would be grist for the mill of saying this was their intent. And I, and I think that that's probably one of the greatest problems um, with, with looking back on that is how intent and thinking that we know other people's intentions has kind of poisoned uh, the well here and when we, when we did surgical M M&M, and M, there was never a belief that we did something to deliberately harm a patient. I don't think anybody here deliberately wanted to harm a patient. I don't think anybody deliberately wanted to harm the economy uh, or anything like that. I think that we came from it from different perspectives. I think we we weighed things very differently, um, and that that had a bigger effect than, than, than anything else. I think that all, all the great Barrington Declaration 
uh, people uh, weighed the economic consequences um, as greater than the um, lives lost. And when they made their declaration, we'd already gone through that early phase where COVID had been wiping out the nursing homes. And we already were starting to see the, uh, the infectability of the virus as well as, as its um, morbidity upon us begin to diminish. So I can understand why they, they took a position about the economics. I disagree with it because I'm a physician and, and I'm kind of in the let's save as many lives as possible first and, and go from there. But I, but I think that talking about intent has really poisoned the issue overall. Dr. Yes, Josh welcome, Bloom. Josh. Dr. Josh. May I intercede? Yes, I just got, I just got back from, uh, I won't say. Uh, uh, I think you need to cut the CDC a break, um, especially June of 2021, but for a different reason, because that's when we started to find out that um, the 95% prevention of infection that came out of the uh, clinical trials with Pfizer didn't hold up once you started to see mutation. So that that we had a, exactly a month. It was pretty much just May of complete freedom if you were if you had your second um, uh, vaccination by then, and all the masks came off and everybody went inside, and then it changed. So uh, you know, it, I blame the virus for a lot of this, but as Chuck said, um, the CDC did a terrible job. Not so much in taking blame because it was really no one's fault that uh, the science developed and the virus changed, but th they could have done a much better job in conveying that to the public. Uh, and that, you know, may have culpa to them for that. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because you, you really never know. Even as, as, let's assume for a moment that they, they did a better job it doesn't necessarily mean that more people would have gotten vaccinated or not gone to work or wore masks or anything else. It, it, I think that it, it would have made um, it possible for there to be that opening for greater trust, though I'm sure that there are people that would take the moment to say, look, this is a flip-flop, rather than saying, no, the, the virus is a dynamic entity and is changing. One of the things I... I, I I thought was interesting about the whole thing is that all of our knowledge about prior epidemics is, is historical and is nowhere in as great detail as what we experienced with, uh, with COVID. Um, so that when we look back on the pandemic of 1918, or you look back on the Black Plague, or you look back on any of these things, there was no historical record of the day-to-day -day changes and how um, those particular uh, microbes or viruses uh, changed over time. And, and I think that um, we were 
fooled a little bit because we really didn't understand the history quite as well uh, as we might. We, we failed to recognize that this was a, a biologic system and that would respond to our actions. So just, I have a couple more questions before we move on. The first is, um, and I'm wondering what, what both of you think of this. I don't think the problem was that people got things wrong. I think that's to be expected in science. It's to be expected when you have a public health emergency because you just don't know everything. And even if you do have adequate information, you know, maybe you make the wrong decision because something else is, is influencing what you, you know, what you say or do. The, the problem was though, is that we're talking about policy. It's like, you're going to do this thing, whatever it is, or there's going to be a consequence to you. And then if you talk about it on social media, you're going to be banned. And, uh, you know, if you don't like with the vaccines, I, and I was very, very troubled, uh, when this was proposed initially is you're going to get this vaccine or you're going to lose your job. You know, so you had, in other words, you had these heavy handed policy decisions that were being made based on incomplete information. And I think that's what changes the equation. If we're just talking about, you know, uh, epidemiologists who, who poorly modeled the way the, the virus spread, that's, you know, hey, that, you know, mistakes happen, no big deal. But again, you're making very important policy decisions based on this changing information. And I think that's what bothers so many people. What, what do either of you think of that? Uh well, I'm I'm going back to blame here, because um, at the same time the CDC was stumbling over itself, you had Fauci, uh, Deborah Burks, is that her name, and and Trump up on the podium, essentially every night, and he's telling people to swallow bleach. So um, there, you know. The look on her face when he said that was was like, you know, get me out of here. So uh, you, 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 there were really two competing arms of the government, uh, the president and the and the and the CDC, and and the president shouldn't have anything to do with it because, as he demonstrated, he knows absolutely nothing about it. So th let's not forget that factor. And I think there was a lot of distrust. Because Trump said something, and time after time, it turned out to be false. See, you know, I, I would talk about the mandates a little bit differently. The primary mandates in terms of who had to be uh, vaccinated in order to continue working were the healthcare workers and uh, the first responders. And, and I think you can make a, a strong public health argument for why that should be the case. I certainly made the argument at the time that um, vaccinating the healthcare workers was critical because it was clear that the healthcare workers were spreading the disease as they moved from job to job, irrespective of how much um, PPE they wore uh, at any given point in time. That was made clear. Uh, certainly from the, the data on how the infection spread from uh, nursing home to nursing home as the staff uh, had more than one job and were working more, more than one place. Same thing for the first responders who are the people at the front line. It certainly makes good public health sense to vaccinate them because if they are 
sick and falling out of the labor pool, uh, you're, you're affecting a critical infrastructure. Now, you can make an, an argument that um, requiring the general public to get vaccinated um, made less sense, but I, I, I think from the point of view of the initial thought of stopping the virus uh, before we began to see how easily it could mutate, um, that too was not an unreasonable position. But it was never, none of these things were ever expressed in that way. As I, as I said up at, up at the beginning, all of these um, statements were made uh, from eminence and and whatever evidence they wish to offer. The other area where that I think that they fell short is that the federal government should have offered guidance and let the local authorities, the state authorities, um, modify it as was necessary uh, for their local conditions. Early on, this was uh, primarily a problem in New Jersey and New York. And so to lock down Florida... Uh, made little sense at the time. Several weeks later, as the cases began to rise in Florida, then it made perfect sense. But the national policy was always, you know, one and done. There was never any attempt made to um, modify for for local conditions. And so I'm going to paraphrase Tip O'Neill, former Speaker of the House, and all health care is local. That's deep, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an old you got to really know your history to remember Tip O'Neill. <laughs> I think if you're a certain age, you just get to claim a particular level of wisdom and people just go, oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> make stuff up and no one will ever know the difference. Well, a lot of people do that. And speaking of making stuff up, and again, we're going to wrap it here. I want to I want to understand how do we deal with this in the future? Because as, as you both just alluded to, you had people in positions of high authority who were contradicting one another, you know, so you had the president at the time saying the vaccines are great. I made them in my hotel, very good vaccines. So you had that going on. Um, and then you had his, right. You had his advisors who it seemed to me were not on the same page that he was on. Right. So you've got this going on in full public view. So people are looking up at this and going, well, what the hell's going on here? Because these people don't agree with each other. They don't seem to agree with themselves from week to week. So I guess the question is, inevitably, when we face another infectious disease, and maybe it won't be pandemic level, maybe it will, I don't know. But when this comes around again, it seems to me that the public health establishment has, has you know, destroyed its credibility in many ways. And it, it doesn't seem that we're going to be well prepared for any kind of response. If this happens again in the next 10 years, say, I just don't think people are going to be willing to go go along with what they say if it looks anything like the COVID response did. So what what do you guys think about that? How do we rectify that situation? So the CDC has some uh, recommendations coming out. And again, I'm going to talk about them in the next week or so up on the website, shameless plug. And they're basically acknowledging that um, they did a very poor job coordinating within the agency itself and with the states and the local healthcare um, agencies. And so that they are trying to redo the organizational chart in order to take that into account. And I think that um, 
from an MBA or org chart point of view, that's all well and good. But they're going to have to, at some point, um, make a change in the the culture at the CDC. And the easiest way to change the culture at the CDC would be to allow uh, the senior leadership um, to go on to other projects and to move some of the, the middle people up and let them have a shot at it. Let me just uh, ask you guys both a question. Knowing now what we do two and a half years later, which is an enormously uh, enormous amount of knowledge, what would you have done differently in March of 2020 if you're running the CDC or the world? Because I can't think of anything. <laughs> I really can't. Chuck, I know you have to jump off, so why don't you take that first? Okay, I'm going to answer that, and then I'm going to run away. Um, <laughs> so that's why I can do it. Say whatever I wish in that case. Um, I think that they needed to more carefully tailor the policy to the local conditions. There was no doubt in my mind um, that we, we had to um, vaccinate and protect the, uh, the most vulnerable and the most frail amongst us. And if you remember back at the early discussions of the vaccines, um, there was this uh, long discussion about who, who was to receive the, uh, the vaccines first. And again, it was the patients in the nursing home, patients with significant comorbidities, and first responders. And I, and I think that that kind of stratification uh, would have been helpful for uh, any number of things, including um, the, the economic lockdowns that took place. And now, that all becomes a little bit harder to dissect out because in a lot of cases, um, people who felt at risk were already taking those measures. As I've written about before, if you look at the, uh, the data from um, our, our cell phones, the older generation in Florida uh, stopped going out and doing things two or three weeks before there was any uh, statement from the, the Florida state government to, to stay at home. So I, I think that, again, I, I'll get back to the idea of tailoring the recommendations to your local conditions would have made a, a big difference. What we needed in South Dakota is not the same thing as what we needed in New York City. And, and we failed at that. Now, as other people will argue that it, it, it's difficult enough to get out a public health message. So when we start giving out multiple messages, it becomes even more confusing. And with that, I apologize and I got to run. That is okay. Thank you for your insightful Commentary as always, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein. We will see you next time. Okay, Josh, I'm very excited you're still still here to join me. Let me answer that question briefly, and then we'll get on to your article about dumb water for smart people or, or vice versa. I always get it confused. I think if, if it were 2020 again, I wouldn't want the sort of authority that the CDC had or that... Um, NIAID had, you know, like I wouldn't want to be Tony Fauci. And I don't think there, there should have been a Tony Fauci, at least in the sense that there, there was someone there who could dictate the policy 
and the states just would have followed it at, at whim. So I would sort of build on Chuck's answer and say it should have been much more local in how the authorities responded. Um, but I think that was one of the key problems you, is you had these central figures making decisions and maybe they weren't strictly dictating policy, but they were influential. And so, you know, if the CDC set masking guidance, most of the states just followed it, you know, and, and hospital systems, like everyone just followed it because thus saith the CDC. So I think that was the biggest problem I had is you just had people who couldn't possibly know everything they needed to know making these sorts of decisions. And then the other thing, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this. The other thing is more humility and and more willingness to accept responsibility and maybe apologize is the wrong word, but to acknowledge that you made a mistake and that you're going to build based on what you've learned from that mistake. You know, as we've been talking about, that just didn't happen, you know, so someone would make a blunder or a policy wouldn't work correctly. And instead of talking about why that happened, you would get the the fact checker brigade, you know, the internet's hall monitors running around going, um, excuse me, uh, you're not allowed to criticize the CDC in such a manner because the science dictates that this is an evolving situation. And blah, 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 blah. That was, that was not helpful because it just sounded like you had water carriers for the government basically trying to defend everything that happened. So I'll stop there. Do you have any thoughts before we move on to your smart water article? Yeah. Um, you have to remember back early, and I'm, I'm, I'm going back to pre-vaccine, pre-Paxlovid days. Um, this was a terrifying disease. Like, um, just according to the news, uh, what you saw and what you read, you did not want to catch this. I, I remember people wearing masks outdoors and staying 10 feet away from each other because they were scared to catch it. So um, I, I don't think you can minimize the, um, the havoc that this thing caused early on. Um, I, I think under those circumstances, and, and this will not be a popular opinion, but I, I think for the most part, they did about as well as they could, especially early on, because there were, you know, 95% of what we know now was not known then. People were leaving their Amazon packages outside because they were afraid to touch them. Now we know that touch isn't an important way of, of spreading it. Um, there were the different types of masks, and somehow that turned into the politics of whether you have to wear masks or not. So it was bedlam, and uh, I, if, I'm not sure that a local approach would have really made much difference because what was happening in New York was going to happen in Florida in a few weeks and uh, all the rest of the, co the country. So I, I don't think there was a good way to handle it, but clearly um, for at least a few months, until the vaccines got started, it was pretty important to keep people away from each other. So, you know, it, there, that's not a great solution, but I don't have a better one. And as a result, you're canceled. You're banned from all social media and you may no longer have a job because I disagree with you, uh, Dr. Bill. No, that's okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, Josh says he's going to retire in the Bahamas and he don't care what I think anymore. Okay, but let's move on, Josh. And I want to talk about this article. I think this is classic Josh Bloom editorializing. And the story is called Smart Water for Dumb Consumers. <laughs> right off the bat, just a beautiful title. It says everything you need to know. But why don't you summarize the story for the folks who haven't read it? Well, I'll back up a little bit. Um, basically, bottles of water have been glorified for a long time now, whether it's uh, somebody throws a, a load of caffeine in and calls it, calls it an energy drink, or whether they throw in a piece of blueberry and it's an antioxidant. Okay, it's, it's bottled water, uh, the, the period. So, you know, the, the manufacturers of different brands have different different lies that they spread in order to make their, um, their product sell. Um, like, like Red Bull energy. It's not water, obviously, but it's a ton of caffeine and a ton of sugar. And maybe, uh, maybe they throw a, vit- a useless vitamin in so they can at least pretend that it's healthy. So the, the, this, um, the smart water nonsense is nothing new. It's just, uh, it was just basically a commercial that annoyed the hell out of me. So I just needed to make fun of it. Sidebar. Have you seen the movie idiocracy? Oh, I should have written that movie, but no, I haven't yet. <laughs> you will absolutely love this movie, Josh. You need to watch it over the break. I won't reveal anything too much, but there's one of the, the side plots in the story is that it's a, it's a dystopian future. That's where the story takes place. And people have given up drinking actual water and they just drink an energy drink called Brondo. <laughs> and the, the, the tagline is it's what plants crave. <laughs> so you just made me think of that with the Red Bull thing. Cause their thing is uh, Red Bull gives you wings, you know, and, and th- there's nothing wrong with these per se. You know, if you drink an energy drink instead of a cup of coffee or whatever, but the, the, the mistake is, is really with the marketers who say, oh, you know, it's got acai berry or it's got vitamin blah, 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 or it's, you know, it's got, you know, echinacea or like whatever stupid thing is supposedly in this. And, um, and it's supposed to be better for you for some reason. So I, I think you're right. That is a real problem. I'm not sure why people believe that or if, if they believe that it, or if we just take it as sort of background that comes with, you know, buying these drinks, but specifically to this, this smart water ad that, that you're talking about. I've seen this on TV very recently. And I just remember even before reading your article, I would roll my eyes because it's, it's, it's a fashion designer or something. And she's just racking her brain about what to do with this mannequin. And then she just happens to have a smart, a bottle of smart water and she cracks it open label conveniently showing right to the camera. It takes a sip and then the lights go on in her head and she's got this great, <laughs> great idea about what to do with her stupid mannequin. You so, so, out so, that her uh, partner, assistant, coworker, whatever, th- like two seconds later, opens up the bottle of water, and it's like <laughs> angels' wings sprout out of both of them, <laughs> right. and they manage to take. Um, a mannequin which would barely make a Halloween day parade because it was too ugly. Uh, it was like a, 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 a black lacquered 
mannequin with covered with um, blue feathers. You know, some, <laughs> something that I, I rarely go out of the house without. And it wasn't, it wasn't quite right. So they open the water, and three seconds later, they have the answer, which is to add some really ugly blue shiny stuff to the ugly mannequin with the ugly feathers. And the, one of them says to the other, that's genius. And then I wanted to throw up. Maybe that's how they evade lawsuits is is they can claim in court like, look, we didn't actually say it would help you make more beautiful art or design better clothing because this stuff is ugly as sin. So, you know, we didn't actually tell you the water would help with anything. Maybe that's how they excuse it. But a couple of the specific claims, you actually pulled these. I don't know where they're from, but Coca-Cola uses this language to, to market smart water. So they say smart water is a purified water made using vapor distillation, a purification process that simulates the hydrologic, <laughs> two words, <laughs> hydrologic cycle, similar to the way water is purified in nature. So aside from the obvious faux pas there by turning uh, hydrologic into two words, um, that's pretty beautiful language. And it sounds to the uninitiated reader, very scientific and very uh wholesome and pure even so what's wrong with that statement you take some water from a fire hydrant in cleveland you distill <laughs> it and it's purified water <laughs> and the reason it works like rain is because in order to distill something you heat it up past its boiling point you pass it through a, a condenser with a cooler and then it drips out and all the all the schmutz is left behind, and you have purer water. Um, well, that's how rain works, right? Um, <laughs> you, you have fog, and it, it runs into cold air, and the and and the fog condenses, and it turns into rain. And uh, you know, so that that's that's the uh, hydrologic uh, <laughs> cycle, similar to the way water is purified in nature. Now, I don't know if that's an intentional mistake or not, because um, uh, hydrologic Im implies that nature has some special thoughts about making super pure water that will run down a spring in, uh, in Greenland or whatever. And it's rain, okay? It's just damn rain. I have to I have to point this out. You 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 illustrated this for for your readers. So it's two raindrops having a conversation. The one on the left says, "You're going up or down," and the other one says, "I've given this matter considerable hydrologic and concluded that down is preferred." <laughs> so good, Josh. Just that that little little drop of cayenne pepper on the top of your prose. It makes it so much better. There's another more scientific point that you that you add to the story and you say that you distill water, you get rid of whatever's potentially harmful in it, but you also get rid of whatever might be healthful about it as well. And so they market the fact that this is distilled water, but then they add back in a bunch of the stuff that they just distilled out of it. So talk about this. All right. Well, first of all, that presupposes that the water is harmful to begin with. And, you know, with, exceptions here and there that are overblown on the news for the most part drinking water in the united states is perfectly safe it, 
you know, sometimes it doesn't taste so good or it's got a lot of extra minerals in it. But it's, it's not like you, you're going to fill up something from the tap and you're going to drop dead. So the water's fine. Um, it's got a lot of calcium, iron, magnesium in it. Um, sometimes the iron gives it a funny taste. So, you know, there are ways to filter it out or whatever. But um, it, it, I found it kind of amusing that um, uh, I, I, I found a chart of um, some of the uh, minerals in New York City water, which is considered to be really good water, good tap water. And it's a whole list of them. I picked out calcium, magnesium, and potassium. So you, you take New York water, which has calcium, magnesium, and potassium, you distill it so that those are all gone, and the water comes over, it's pure, and then they put in calcium, magnesium, and potassium. So uh, I, I kind of likened that to um, uh, like taking a, a a plate of, of food, um, wiping it into the garbage, cleaning the plate, and then sc scraping the stuff out of the garbage and smearing it back on the plate because it's uh, that, that, that's about what you're accomplishing here. <laughs> okay, so if it needs to be said, let me outline it for people. Don't waste your money on smart water. You know, fill fill up your bottle with tap water, which is perfectly safe, you know, if you're in the United States. Cameron, the, the, I mean, there's some real quackery in there, although they don't make the claims. The claims are out there, and that's about alkaline, alkaline water and uh, making your blood alkaline to fight cancer. Yeah, yeah, go, go into that, right. please. But this is a long-standing fraud by... You know the Mike Adams and the whatevers of the world. It's based on, if I have my facts right, right. Um, you grow in cancer cells in a petri dish and check in the pH. So they grow a little bit better uh, in acidic environment than basic environment for whatever reason. It doesn't even make any difference. So then then there's this really gigantic leap of stupid logic saying that, well, obviously, if I drink basic water, then my cancer cells are going to stop uh, growing. And people bought this. Uh, you know, Whole Foods, I made fun of Whole Foods two or three years ago for selling alkaline water. And, and it's just based on this absolute quackery. Because... If you um, any anything like bicarbonate or an antacid that goes into your stomach, which is highly acidic pH two, it's immediately neutralized. Uh, so right away, if you put an alkaline solution, baking soda or whatever, into your stomach, um, it, it'll maybe raise the pH of your stomach from two to three to four or whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter because your blood is programmed to be between, to exist in a very tight uh, pH range of 7.35 to 7.45. And if you go outside of that in either direction, you're dead. 
<laughs> so the the thought that some that that this is going to make it in through your stomach somehow, get into the blood and turn your blood alkaline, that's the quackery. But if you look this up on the internet, you'll find dozens, if not hundreds, of claims of the same the same sort. So that was the serious, um, you know, the serious part of that is that this, you know, it may have beautiful young women in it getting instant genius ideas from opening a glass of water or a bottle of water, but basically it's based on quackery from a, from a while ago. And then this is the part I really object to. They can't write that, of course. But why are they saying smart? What's smart? The water's not smart. It's not going to make <laughs> you smart. There's got to be some reason for it to be smart. And I believe that they're referring to this alkaline water nonsense quackery from, from decades ago. It is strange how, how advertising gets around it, you know, because, I mean, conceivably, if you say the wrong thing in, in advertising, the FDA could come down on you. It's not it's not guaranteed that they will, you know, cause they have discretion on that sort of thing. But I always wonder about that. You know, the, the lawyers at Coca-Cola must have vetted this thing and, you know, like the language and what they're showing, it's probably very carefully tuned so they can't be accused of anything. That's why I was getting at with that joke earlier about the art that they're making being ridiculous, <laughs> you know, so they can, if they have to, they can defend that in court or something. Yeah, but I guess course. the message, the message, as always, like like I said, is like, you know, be skeptical. Water's water. You need to drink it. But, you know, it's not going to it's not it's not going to be a religious conversion experience if you drink the right water and you're not going to boost your career or whatever. And, um, and you know, you're not going to gonna prevent cancer either. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and you quote someone from um, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here, right? So go to people like that. Go to people that study cancer for a living and treat cancer patients for a living. Don't go to Doctor X because he's he's a clown. Same thing with Mike Adams, right? They don't know what they're talking about. Start with Josh Bloom. Work your way into more narrow expertise from there. I think that's the best advice. I couldn't agree you. more. <laughs> Josh is here to answer all. Um, piano-related questions, and chemistry-related questions for you folks out there. But we're going to stop there. Thank you, as always, for joining us. If you want to get these stories we're talking about, go to our website, acsh.org. Click on the subscribe tab up top, punch in your email. Three times a week, we'll send you our dispatch newsletter. And at the end of the week, we look at the articles that have been uh, read by the most number of people, and those are the ones we discuss here. So if you show up for the podcast and you've read those stories, you're going to know what we're talking about and you'll get a little bit more out of the experience. And with that, we will see you all next time.